Thank you, ladies. Please take your Bibles with me to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Let's turn together to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 14. And this morning, our text, as we come through our study of Matthew verse by verse, we come to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 21. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 21. Let's look to the Word of God this morning. Matthew chapter 13, hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them. And he healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is, is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Turn with me now to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. We're going to take a moment to turn to Mark's record of this same account with some added details that I think we'll find helpful this morning as we walk through this very familiar miracle of Jesus. Mark, chapter 6, verse 30 Mark gives us some added details as well. Mark 6, verse 30, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. So let's just hit pause for a second. Let's go back in our, our mind's eye review back in Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus sent out the disciples to go out and to do ministry. And he told them and instructed them to teach, to perform miracles, to go forth in his name. And so they've been doing this in the background. And so now we come back to, they're coming back from their missions trip, if you will, their, their time of ministry, many of them. They now come back to Jesus here, now, to verse 30, to tell them both what they had done, tell him what, both what they had done and what they had taught. Verse 31, and he said to them, now come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves, but the multitudes, verse 33, saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. And they arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place. The hour is already late. 
Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Now notice verse 37. This is where Mark adds an included phrase. But Jesus answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. <laughs> These disciples have no provision. How are we supposed to feed uh, a surprise family? Uh, we often will say. And they're like, whoa, oh, guess, oh, come on over. Baby, do we have enough food? That type of thing. Uh, we would struggle to feed an entire church off the, off the cuff. We cannot feed 5,000 people, much less you get a group of men together. Uh, listen, I'm sure they struggle. They can fish, but cooking the fish may be a different story. Verse 38, how, so then he, verse 37, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So they went and researched. They come and find out. We have five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. Notice that phrase, the green grass. We'll highlight that later. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up the twelve baskets full of fragments of fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Well, let's come back now to our text in Matthew chapter 14. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Our text this morning is the all-satisfying Christ. The all-satisfying Christ. As we look into the Word of God this morning, we are reminded that the theme of this text, the theme of this message, is that the greatest need of all of us here this morning, the greatest need of every person you know, the greatest need of every human being is to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Matthew Henry, the famous commentator, says this. He says, every morning when I wake up, I have but one ambition, and that is to make myself happy in God. And when I read that, I like that. We often don't wake up happy. It's not that we're mad. It's not that anything's necessarily wrong. We just don't feel human. That's what's wrong. And we, like Matthew Henry, need to do just that, make a beeline to the cross Go to God's Word and open it up and read the sufficient Word that points us to the sufficient Christ and to pursue joy in the Savior, the Son of God. Every morning when I wake up, I have but one ambition, to make myself happy. John Piper says it a little bit of a different way. He says it like this, famously from his book, Desiring God. God is most glorified in me or in us. When we are most satisfied in Him. Let's make that personal. God is most glorified in me when we or when I am most satisfied in Him. This morning as we start and prepare for this lesson, I want us to know this. Your satisfaction in Christ, brothers and sisters here at Grace, is under attack. It's under attack every day. It's under attack every moment of every day. Ephesians 6 language, these fiery darts of Satan come both from without and they also come from within. Arrows of dissatisfaction to distraction are aimed at my heart, are aimed at your heart all throughout the day. We are a landmine away of growing dissatisfied or forgetting or ignoring all that we have in the gospel. 
in Christ. These are arrows that communicate to us that we will not be satisfied until we do one more of this, or go there, or purchase that, and that, and that, and that, and that. These arrows of dissatisfaction come to us, and friends, we must guard our hearts. They're not only arrows from without, but they are arrows from within. In fact, it's a part of our fallen flesh. It's a, it's a part of our fallen nature. Isaac Watts summarizes it best, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And yet, this God that we love, we often feel our souls wondering from. So it leads us to ask a question this morning, a question for all of us. Church, what satisfies your soul? Or maybe ask a different way. Are you satisfied in the person and work of Christ? Do you love his word? Because his word is the bread of life. His word is what feeds and leads and guides and sustains. Colossians 3.23. Let the word of Christ, Paul says, let the word of Christ control you, dwell in you richly. Friends, does his word dwell in us richly? Because his word points us to himself. So our passage today here in Matthew chapter 14, the theme of it is simply this. I'll go ahead and tell you the point of the message. Jesus is the all-sufficient Christ. Jesus is the all-satisfying Christ. And as basic as this is, as basic as that is here in the text, it's missed. It will be missed this morning by some. It'll be missed just like Jesus' hometown missed him. Some will hear it, they know it intellectually, but in their heart there is no life. Don't miss it. Jesus is all you need. Or as my dying granddad said on his deathbed, all in all is Jesus, and Jesus is everything. So we come here to this text that points us to this amazing miracle. And the point of this miracle is that Jesus is our sufficiency. It's called the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe it's been a while since you've looked at this text. All of us, I'm sure, know about this miracle because we, if you've been in the life of the church, if you've been in a healthy home that has family worship and discipleship, you're going to come across this miracle because it's included in all four of the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, I did a little study. I pulled a number of the children's Bibles and books and devotional resources that we have, and we've got quite a few, and almost all of them include this miracle in the section on the life of Christ. We love this miracle. It's an amazing miracle. It's a mind-boggling miracle miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. So it's included in most curriculums. And then obviously we're preaching on it even this morning. Maybe you've heard this passage preached upon. It is a supernatural banquet. So we saw last week, we looked at another banquet. It was a banquet thrown by Herod the Tetrarch. That banquet was not like this banquet. That banquet was a raucous. It was fleshly. It was carnal. It was blasphemous. It was everything associated with the fall of man. Here, this banquet, as we look at the supernatural meal this morning, is pure, beautiful, life-giving, life-sustaining, bringing many sons to glory. And by extension this morning, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the sustained Word of God, bringing many sons to glory even, hopefully, in this very hour. 
And this is one of the most famous miracles of Jesus. As I said, it's included in all of the four Gospels, but it is also mentioned the most, a total of nine times throughout the Gospel records. Jesus will point back to this miracle in Matthew chapter 16, verse 9, as a reminder, do you not remember, to his disciples? It's also taught in Mark chapter 6, 52, Mark chapter 8, John chapter 6, two different times. It's one of the most often referred back to, looked at, miracles that Jesus performs in the scriptures. This morning, we're going to frame our thoughts around two key headings. Number one, the compassion of Christ. And number two, the creative miracle of Christ, or simply the creation of Christ. Number one, the compassion of Christ. And number two, the created miracle of Christ. Look with me at verse 10 as we hit the own ramp here. So verse 10 says this. It says, so, so he went, or excuse me, and he sent, and he had John beheaded in prison. And his head, John's head, was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples, John's disciples, came and took away the body and buried it. And notice this phrase, and then they went and came to Jesus. They went and told Jesus. Here in our text, as we prepare the way to transfer from last week's message to this week's message, John's disciples come to Jesus in their grief. Their messenger, their mentor, their rabbi, their teacher has been killed. And there's a lesson for us as we think about the all-satisfying Christ, the all-sufficient Christ, is friends, run to Christ in every season of, of your life, particularly in your grief. That's what John's disciples do. John 1.20, John told them, he says, I am not the Christ, but he is the Christ. And I have no doubt that when they went and took up the body of John, just kind of enter into it with me for a second, his head is not connected to his body. Imagine that scene. Some of you work in the medical field. Some of you work as first responders. Some of you have worked in connection to funeral homes. You've seen some things. This is a scene. John's disciples come and they see a body that does not have a head. Imagine the scene. Imagine the fluids poured out. Imagine terror and horror. These men are never going to be the same after what they've seen. They've lost their rabbi. And John's words come to them in this very moment. I am not the Christ, but he is the Christ. So they come running to Jesus. They come to the right person who can help them. And this points us to the compassion of the king. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the king. He is the king of the Jews. He has come for his people. And his name is Jesus Christ. And that not only is Matthew's continual theme is that Jesus is the king, but a secondary theme that, that Matthew's constantly pointing us to is the, the compassion of this king. This is not a king, Hebrews 2, who has no way to empathize with us in our humanity in our flesh, in our sufferings. No, this is a king who is tested in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Look to him, the truest king, the better king than any earthly king. He is the greatest, truest prophet, priest, and king. But here, notice the compassion of the king. Matthew's already highlighted this, pointing us in Matthew chapter 8 to the healing of the leper. Matthew 8, verse 5, the healing of the centurion's servant. So the leper, a marginalized person removed from society. The centurion, who was a Gentile. Matthew 9, 20, the desperate woman who had a condition of blood. All of these point us to the fact that Jesus 
has come. He is the Son of God. He is King. But He's not a King afar off, friends. He's a King who is near. He is available. He is accessible. Come to Jesus. Maybe chiefly highlighting the compassion of this King, Matthew 9, 36. And when Jesus saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like Sheep having no shepherd. Mark, in his account, Mark 6, that we just saw, used this same language that Matthew uses in Matthew 9 to describe Jesus' heart toward those who are weary and scattered. They are like sheep having no shepherd. Friends, behold your compassionate king. Now notice verse 13. And when Jesus heard it, he departed. What, heard what? Heard this news about John the Baptist. He departed from there by boat and deserted to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot to the cities, from the cities. What's going on here? Well, we're talking about how Jesus is the true king. He is a compassionate king. But here we have a moment that I think if we just read and go quickly, we're going to miss. It's the fact that Jesus grieves. We see him in other passages at the loss of his friend Lazarus. Jesus knowing yet what he's going to do. The other gospel writers know and describe that that Jesus is, is God. He's not just the Son of God. He is God. He has all knowledge. And yet he empathizes with us. His friend. His cousin. Many people forget that John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. His forerunner. His prophet has died. So how does Jesus respond? I have no doubt these disciples came Broken, shattered, trembling, needing help, needing counseling, needing affirmation. And Jesus does all of that. But here we see Jesus retreats. He needs to get alone. Other passages in the Gospels tell us that Jesus regularly got alone. He came apart from the crowds. And what did he do? Almost always he prayed. Almost every single time the Gospel writers say that Jesus removed himself, he went to a quiet place. And he prayed to his father. He he, he prayed to his father who was in secret. He he went to the prayer closet. And what we find here in this record is that that's what Jesus is trying to do. Notice the word trying. According to Mark and Luke and John's accounts, at some point the disciples then come along on this retreating. They begin to pour out their hearts to him. You can feel the weight of the text, can't you? Here we see from this text that we marvel at his deity and simultaneously his his humanity verse 13 jesus withdraws he withdraws because of a couple of things some would say well legrand you're reading too much into his grief but i'm not going to overlook that fact some would say well he's withdrawing and retreating to the antagonism of herod he knows what herod's wrath can do previously in the gospel of matthew herod ordered all the infant boys killed jesus knows how insane herod is he also understands his own need for rest And the disciples need for rest from their missions trip, their preaching tour. And so he, by example, for them and for us, models the attempting to come apart, to get away. Friends, we're reminded how good it is sometimes to get away. In fact, many preachers struggle with this kind of thing. They, They think that they're hero of every story, that their church can't do without them, or your Sunday school class can't do without you, or your ministry where God has placed you can't do without you. There's a restorative aspect to sometimes just hitting pause and zooming back 
spending time with the Lord, being renewed and refreshed. And I just want to remind all of us that the only thing that will last is not a human ministry or personality-driven ministries, but it's a Christ-driven ministry. What do we see here in not only Jesus' grief, but what this lesson tells us is that God calls his servants, raises up his servants, sometimes ordains or allows that those servants be martyred, in this case, beheaded, and God will care and he will minister, but that was his plan for John the Baptist from the beginning. And yet, what is the lesson for us? His work goes on. His work goes on. Count von Zizendorf said this, my sole ambition in life is simply this, to preach the gospel, to live the gospel, to die and be forgotten. Now that sounds sterile, and I don't mean for it to be, but it crystallizes what is most important. What is the message of my life, friend, and what is the message of your life? It should be Christ, Christ, Christ. Paul says, the only thing I boast in is Christ. I don't boast in anything else. Sometimes we need to come apart, and when we come apart, there's a change of pace, there's a change of place, and it gives a change in perspective. We don't know that Jesus slept in the boat on his way in this account. Many other accounts show us. We'll see here in just a little bit in our going through Matthew's gospel that Jesus sleeps and storms come upon the horizon. Sometimes the most godly thing we can do is to rest and to sleep. So he retreats. His disciples come with him, verse 13. But when the multitudes heard it, not for long, they followed him on foot from the cities. They went around the shore, figured out where he was going, and they met him and were standing there at the shore. And it leads us to ask this question. Again, our theme here, this first heading, is the compassion of Jesus. What was his response when he sees them? Is it annoyance? You get annoyed, I get annoyed. We all get annoyed. What is the response of Jesus? Is he annoyed? Does he complain? And the answer to both of those is absolutely no. He has compassion for the people. Friends, what is the lesson here for us? Well, it's an obvious one, I think. It's simply this. People are not the interruption to ministry. People are the ministry. God has not come in Christ to simply show and perform. He has not simply come to just teach. He has not simply come to do just certain things. What he's trying to do is to save these very people. He has come to seek and save the lost. So what is his response to the crowds? It's one of compassion. Friends, we can so many times get caught up in all the wrong things in the name of ministry. We can get upset. We can get caught up in the process of ministry. We can get caught up in the practice of ministry. But what about the people of ministry? It's a reminder to all of us that people are not the source of frustration. They are the ministry. Can you tell I'm preaching to myself this morning? Parents, can you tell I'm preaching to you this morning? Husbands, can you tell I'm preaching to you this morning? Wives, can you tell I'm preaching to you? Workers who go forth in the name of Christ... First, we read just before the offering in the book of Colossians, let everything that you do be done for the Lord. Minister to interruptions in your day as unto the Lord. It's a great lesson for us. Verse 14, and Jesus, he went out and he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and he healed their sick. 
How does he respond? He responds with compassion. This word compassion means to feel in the bowels. It's a term that we use, but we don't realize we use. When we see it like this, it's like, wait, I don't know, like that's odd, but it's not odd. We use it like this, I hate their guts. Or that man arrested by the police, he's spilling his guts. It means to feel from the top of your head all the way down. Compassion is the, the positive usage of it. It means to feel with warmth and love, concern, affection to the point of tears. We see this in Christ, Matthew chapter 9. We see it here. Weeping over lost sheep. Weeping over people who do not see the need that they have. So all of this teaches us about the compassion of Christ. Pure, untainted, godly love. How does he respond? With compassion. I have a question for us, church, that when we are living our everyday lives, how do you view people? When you see people, what do you see? Do you see the most obvious features? They're a man or a woman? Do you see the most practical things? They're great or small or an adult or a child? or their physique, their skin color, the, just the basic things of the eyes of flesh, is that all you see? Do you see like Jesus sees? Because what Jesus sees is sheep who need a shepherd. In Grace Church, I'm convinced we, I, all of us must recapture this view of Christ, this way of seeing. Not to use the word that is often overused, but judge, being judgmental, but that's what it is. Quick pre-assessments. May we see people with compassion as spiritual beings who will exist and live somewhere for all eternity. This is the compassion of our shepherd king. And friends, it must be my compassion. It must be your compassion. This must be our vision. This embodiment of Jesus, this emotion of Jesus, we don't often get a lot of insight into the emotions of Jesus in a culture that is obsessed with emotions. In a culture that only describes itself in emotions, we get very few insight into Jesus' emotions. But one of those emotions that we do see more regularly than any other see is tears. It's empathy. It's crying. It's passion. It's compassion. In a church that's addicted to hilarity today, the American church, positive vibes, fun vibes, not that we don't not have that, those are certainly a, a byproduct of fellowship. It's just a reminder to us, how often do we weep, church? How often do our tears pour out because we're concerned about our lost loved ones, concerned about our neighbors, concerned about those around us? When is the last time I've looked at anyone and had compassion for them? Yesterday, I was eating with a brother, eating lunch, and we had a conversation, and our waitress came to us, and I as often I will do, felt the prompting of the Lord to say, how can I pray for you? And I forgot to pray for her. I was so convicted about that. I said, how can we pray for you? She, she gave us something to pray about. And I completely, like, evidently my heart wasn't in it. And I felt that conviction as I was driving home. It dawned on me. I didn't even pray for her. I asked her, how can we pray for you? And I didn't even do it. And I was convicted about how shallow I was. Obviously, my heart, my mind was already on to the next thing or something else. Friends, we're convicted. This, this, this brings us to our core. Matthew wants us to know, he's recording this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the compassion of the king. 
Secondly, second heading, the creative miracle of Christ, beginning in verse 15. We move into one of the most amazing miracles. It says, and when it was evening, his disciples came to him and they said, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Just go ahead and send the the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Now, this is interesting, right? There's so much going on here. When we come to a text like this, what do we do? This text goes on to tell us that Jesus performs an astounding miracle. A miracle that's never been done before in in the sense of the scale at which he did it. It was done in a smaller scale in the Old Testament by some of the Old Testament prophets, by Moses, by Elijah, and by others. The miracle of taking a little bit of food and turning it into more food. Or the miracle of taking uh, manna from the sky, leading God's people to be fed as God provided for the people in the wilderness. But this is an absolute amazing miracle where Jesus takes pre-existing materials and through his divine resources continues to provide even more of that to 5,000 people. Now, I'm not going to spend the rest of our time looking at this from an apologetic sense, but I do want to take a word here. Many liberal theologians would come to a text like this and they would seek to scale it down. They would seek to find a way to reject the miraculous part and point to the more moral lessons, if you will. They would, like um, Thomas Jefferson, take a penknife and begin to whittle away and make a Bible of their own creating, stripping the miraculous from the Scriptures. And while I don't think there's anybody here this morning who would be tempted to do that, one way we may strip the miraculous from this text is just through familiarity. Through familiarity. Being overly familiar with this text. We accept this by faith, church. Jesus, this text tells us, we'll look at more in just a moment, but Jesus literally takes the means that were given to him. Notice with me in the text, beginning in verse 16. And Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish And looking up to heaven, he blessed it and broke and gave loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. And so all ate and were filled, and they took up the twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now all those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. I did some study to look at how liberal commentators try to excuse this text and explain this text, and I will not even waste your time to try to tell you what they say. One thing I just want to say, summarizing it like this, this is a visible miracle. Jesus took the bread, took the elements, and blessed it before the people. There's no shenanigans taking place. Notice one thing, that our modern-day skeptics, Wednesday we'll be talking about the insanity of atheism, but just notice how our modern-day skeptics completely disbelieve the miracles of Jesus, but none of the people in Jesus' day ever did. They just rejected him. In all of these gospel records, none of them can say, do say, that didn't happen, or that's not true. They just reject Jesus and say, I don't like it. Today, people just say, well, that didn't happen, that's not true. Not even That's an apologetic for the deity of Christ and the miracles of Christ. None of his enemies ever said, that didn't happen, that's not true. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, the leader, comes to him and says, we know that any, a man who does these things, he must come from God. The only way that you can do what you're doing is to be from God. 
We know that this is not human. We know this is not natural. We know that this is not of the earth. Friends, we come to a text like this and recognize that this is not a thing that is done in a corner, as Paul says in the book of Acts. This is not small scale. This is not gimmicks and games. There is not a curtain here where the disciples are behind and they're passing up loaves on a, on a conveyor belt and they're passing up fish on a conveyor belt and Jesus is going like this, reaching behind him. That is some of the explanations that are given, that Jesus was in front of a cave and he had a very large tunic and, he, and they're passing it up from behind and from the vantage point of the people down there in the grass, they couldn't see it. Friends, we just start looking ridiculous. I want you to know this, but by faith, we accept this as the word of God. And as crazy as that sounds, it is not crazy. And it's no more crazy than a naturalist who says, you expect me to believe that Jesus took pre-existing materials and miraculously turned it into more for the people? Absolutely. Just like it's crazy for you to believe that there was once nothing that turned into something. Like a great bang that turned it from nothing and out of nothing came everything. That's just as crazy as you think this is crazy. Listen, here's the point I'm trying to make. It takes faith. And don't let a skeptic or a naturalist or someone who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ or the word of God or the scriptures come to you and say something like this. You have your, you got your faith as a term of derision, but we have facts. Science is facts. Naturalism is facts. We have our facts. <laughs> what do you have? You have your faith. No, 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 friend. It is faith versus faith. The question is, is what will you place and put your faith in? And I invite you to look to the creator, the Lord of all the earth, and place your faith in him and him alone. Turn with me, hold your finger here, and turn with me briefly to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and, and I think sometimes we get so in the weeds of, of, the, of the life of Jesus, we forget just who he is. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 and reminds us, of who our sovereign God is. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul, as a part of his preaching about the preeminence of Christ, gives this description. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, he says, For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Go down with me to verse 15. He is the image, who? Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know who God is, look no further than Christ. That's what John says in John, John chapter 1. So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Notice verse 16. For by him... All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created through him, through Christ, and for him. So that would necessitate, verse 17, and he is before all things. And since he is before all things, in him all things consist. And by the way, verse 18, he's the head of the church, the body who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Like the quarks, the protons, you get the idea. The elements, our very genetic makeup, this world, in the beginning God spoke, 
As we see these miracles that Jesus performs, Jesus is God. And so Matthew wants us to know here in this creative miracle of Christ that this is God made flesh. He is the all-satisfying Christ. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. So for him to come to bread and fish and to miraculously multiply is nothing. This miracle is no harder to rest in and believe than any other miracle that Jesus performs. For many reasons, for some reason I would say, as a child of the church, this is not a struggle that I've had as far as questioning the miracles of, of God and coming to them. Thankfully, God blessed me to be able just to hear the word and believe the word. But I understand that, that many people struggle to understand this. And so let's let the scriptures feed and lead and give light and insight that if Jesus is who he says he is, this is nothing for him. Nothing. And that's what this text reveals. The feeding of the 5,000. Now turn with me to John chapter 6. Thank you for being patient as we turn to some passages more than what we usually do in connection to our text. But turn with me to John chapter 6. As you're turning there, I just want to make some points. Jesus wants his disciples to know some things. He's teaching his disciples just as much as he's teaching the crowds. He's wanting his disciples to see their need. That's why he asked them, why don't you go ahead and feed them? He wants them to see their lack of resources. He wants them to see their need of him. He is the all-sufficient creator, king, Christ, physically, spiritually. And yet, Jesus, out of his divine resources, uses his disciples to minister to the crowds. Did you see that in Mark chapter 6? They were organized. They were placed in their sections. They went about the work of the Lord decently and in order, as Paul gives instructions in 1 Corinthians, that the, word of, the work of God is to be done in, in a way that it is to be done purposefully, intentionally, organizationally. We see this carefully carried out. But friends, as we look at this text this morning, do not simply stop with the fact that even that Christ can perform this miracle. Rest in this Christ who can perform this miracle. Notice how John points our hearts to this. Look with me at John chapter 6, verse 26. Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now, he's giving commentary on John's account of this same miracle. This is afterward. He says this, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe in you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Do you understand that distinction? Don't worship Moses. Don't worship Peter, James, Andrew, and those who delivered the miracle of Jesus, the fish and the loaves, to the people. Don't worship the messenger. Worship God and, and Him alone. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, verse 32, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, 
But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And he said to them, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Friends, as we look at this text, do not simply stand in amazement of the miracle working power of Jesus. Understand that Jesus is sent from God. Understand that Jesus is the Savior. Understand that Jesus is the most important thing here. Understand that Jesus is the bread of life. What's important here in this miracle is not the bread and the fish miraculously being distributed. What is the point of this miracle is to look to Jesus and live. And all who come to me, he says here, John 6, all who come to me, I will not, verse 37, I will by no means turn away, cast out. Friends, that's the point of this amazing feeding of the 5,000. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you rest in Jesus for your soul's salvation? Have you come to Jesus and repented of your sins? Have you turned from your life of wickedness? And have you turned to Christ in simple faith, resting in His work, not your works, but His work, and resting in Him alone? Do you bear fruit in keeping with that profession, trust, and faith? Again, John the Baptist told the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 3, why are you coming to hear me preach? I'm not saying that, even, even today. John the Baptist preached in a way that was on another level. John the Baptist knew things that, that we don't know in the sense of revelation and insight. He asked his crowd, he says, why do you come to me and yet not bear fruits that are consistent with the profession you have made? And so I would say from an exhortation, encouragement here this morning, friends, does your life bear the fruit of your salvation? I pray that it does. Do you see Jesus as your all-sufficient Christ and King? Your all-sufficient prophet, priest, and King? Now turn with me to Matthew, excuse me, Psalm verse 23. Psalm verse 23. And I want to make a connection here that Jesus is the true and better. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is the true and better Elijah. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Mark told us, as we saw a moment ago, that he organized them and had them sit down in green grass. Matthew tells us that he had them sit in the grass. Jesus is the great shepherd king who comes, finds his sheep, calls them by name, and lays down his life for the sheep. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What satisfies you? Question at the beginning. Do you see Jesus as your all satisfaction? The Lord, notice this personal pronoun here, is my shepherd. Yes, he's our shepherd this morning, but he's my shepherd. He's your shepherd. Can you say that? Are you living that? Are you resting in that? The Lord is my shepherd. And because of that, I shall not want. 
He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Lord, how long? How long, O oh Lord? What are you doing, God? He's restoring our souls. He's feeding us. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a, a table before me in the presence of my enemies, John the Baptist. You will anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, Jesus is our true prophet, priest, and king. He is our shepherd king who doesn't stay on his throne, but he came. He comes among us, took up a body just like us. He lives the life we're supposed to live and cannot live. We're reminded of every day as we seek his grace and mercy and forgiveness of sins, resting in his righteousness alone. He went to the cross and died our death. He was buried in the grave, and three days later he rose again. And because of his resurrection, we will have a resurrection. Because of his resurrection, we have life and hope. He is, the, as Paul said, Colossians 1, the firstborn from the dead. That does not mean he's the the firstborn to ever rise from the dead. We know from the miracles of Christ that he performed, for example, Lazarus. Listen, he is the, the firstborn from the dead in that he is God. He is king. He rose from the dead never to die again. What happened with Lazarus, church? Lazarus was raised from the dead, and as wonderful as that miracle was, he died again. Listen, he is the firstborn from the dead. And because he lives and because he reigns, we have a living hope, Peter describes, 1 Peter 1. Our hope is in a living hope, which is found in Jesus Christ. This is good for us. This is restorative for us. This is helpful for us. And may the Lord bless his word. As we come to the end of our message this morning, I want to give some points of application. So please don't turn, tune out just yet. We see in this text two banquets, the banquet of Herod and the banquet of Christ. Friends, this is a parallel of the doctrine of known as the two ways that we see in Scripture. Psalm 1, the way of the righteous man and the way of the unrighteous. Jesus describes this in his Sermon on the Mount as the way, the narrow way and the broad way. We have two banquets here, the banquet of Herod and the banquet of Christ. I would call this in conclusion this morning just to reflect on some things that the banquet of Herod points to the flesh. It points to that which never satisfies. It points to the effects and horrors of sin. We saw last week the, the fear of Herod, the, 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 the um, seared conscience of Herod, and all the aims which he pursued. This banquet of Herod is a banquet that describes the fallen man, a life that never satisfies. But here we see the banquet of Christ, a spiritual banquet. Coming to this king, two kings, one a king of the flesh. Here we have the king of life, the Lord of glory, who invites us to come to him. Listen here, not for the bread and not for the gifts, but to come to him because of him for life, that we may have life. Parallel in these two banquets, John describes this, 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, 
these fallen things of the world is not of the Father, but is of the world. And this world is passing away, and it's lust that comes with it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Oftentimes, eyes of faith and eyes of flesh do not make sense. Or you could just say like this, eyes of flesh seem to make sense, and eyes of faith look like insanity. What? I thought if I came to Jesus, I would have a flourishing life. Come to Jesus, many will preach today and describe and say, and he'll give you health and wealth and blessing. Look no further than the apostles. Look no further than Christ. Look no further than John the Baptist to see that sometimes the will of God for us is pain and suffering. But yet, John the Baptist, if he could come and preach a message here this morning, says, listen, follow God. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He will never abandon you. And for all eternity, he has been reaping the rewards of faith in Christ. The eyes of flesh would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. If I do that, I'm going to lose my life. I'll go with what is easy. And I'll go with what is natural. The book of Proverbs says the way of man is right in his own eyes, but it leads to death. There is a natural way of the flesh. But friends, it leads to death. Two banquets. Come to the bread of life. Rest in him and him alone. Yes, in this life it may be pain. It may mean sacrifice. It may mean beheadings. We, we hear all around the world today. Thankfully, we don't live in such a place. But all around the world today, pastors will stand up and they will lose their life because of what they're doing this morning or have done this morning. Friends, two banquets. Come to Jesus, the true and better king. Rest in the bread that he offers. Rest in him. He is the bread of life. Friend, what satisfies your soul? Are you resting in the all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it like this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Even in suffering, we can enjoy God, glorify him, and grow with him, be with him forever. I want to point to some practical applications from this text. Notice that there were great needs that Jesus saw, and he was moved with compassion. Just a ministry insight. Jesus did not do any of this for the crowds. Like in the sense of he did not perform these miracles and do the bread and the loaves to draw the crowd but yet with the heart of compassion, he ministered to the needs of the crowd. The ministry was rooted in himself. And it's a reminder for us as a church not to seek to be attractional for the sake of being attractional. To do something for the sake of pragmatically drawing people and then find a way to insert Christ. But yet, to live faithfully, to look around with eyes of compassion, led of the Spirit, and see what are the needs of our community. And church, I want to praise you this morning and saying you are a faithful church. You are doing that. As we look around, we've got people who say, how can I serve? Where can I serve? How can I be involved? And as we look around, the Lord is opening doors here and there. We're assessing the needs and we are going to those places of needs and bringing Christ to them. This text shows us that Jesus cares not just for the spiritual, but he cares about the practical things of of giving and baking bread. 
We have a sweet lady here in our congregation who that's her particular ministry, makes some of the best bread in town. Friends, Jesus is in the bread making business. He's not so spiritual, is my point I'm trying to make. He's not so spiritual that he doesn't have time for the practical things of life. Listen, Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must do good unto all men. That, that, literally, that phrase, we must do good unto all men, work for the good of all, but especially for those who belong to the household of faith. May the Lord give us this heart and passion, ethos of our Savior. One last point that I have is simply this. Talking about the contrast between the, the modern message today of a life of ease, come to Jesus and everything gets better. Well, I can't promise you that this morning. In fact, come to Jesus and things may get worse. You may lose your marriage. You may lose your, your, your family. I, I doubt that, but that could happen. That happens all the time. When you devote your life to Christ, they may think you've lost your mind. I have a really good friend who was a Roman Catholic who came to faith in Christ and recognized that it was not his works of righteousness, but it was Christ alone. He was born again. He was saved. And his marriage got worse instead of getting better. His wife would not believe him. And finally, he didn't know how to tell her that he was no longer adhering to the tenets of Catholicism. And she finally confronted him, concerned that he was having relationships outside their marriage. And he said, whoa, no, 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 I, I, absolutely not. Let me tell you what's happened to me. I've been saved. I'm born again. I'm a new person. This is not an act. This is who I really am. This is what Christ is doing and done in me. And I will tell you, friends, that man has had a very difficult road, a very difficult road. And what we see here is that our lives could, in one extent, Represent this. When we come to the Lord, listen, God's will for us may mean to be broken, to be poured out, all for his glory. J.R. Miller, the author, says it like this. When God breaks our lives to pieces, it is because they will do far more for his glory. And this world's broken good and shattered good than selfishly left to ourselves whole and complete. Listen, some of you have been broken. But that brokenness, as we've been studying through the book of Psalms, is, is not without purpose. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things are working together, work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Maybe just to put it practically, what about the little boy who had the bread and fish to begin with? If he had kept it to himself, how many people would have been ministered to that day? Just one. He gave it to Jesus. What did Jesus do? Jesus reached infinitely more than that boy could ever do by himself, by offering up what he had to the Lord. Friends, come to our all-sufficient Savior, Christ and King. Come to Jesus and rest in him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the miracles of Christ. It's been a while since we've looked at one and been in some different passages, the parables. This biographical detail of John the Baptist, how refreshing it is, Lord, to come to the one who satisfies, to come to the true and better Moses, the true and better Elijah, the true and better shepherd, prophet, priest, and king. Lord, would you apply this word by your spirit to your people? You know the needs that are present here this morning. We will trust you for the application of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us as we close.
Clovis